The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, I have a very special guest, Janine Roth, who is a master storyteller. She is an author of books that have helped countless people around the world. Her books are Women, Food, and God, An Unexpected Path to Almost Everything, and Lost and Found, One Woman's Story of Losing Her Money and Finding Her Life. We have so much to talk about with Janine this morning. Janine, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. It is great to have you here. So (laughs) you are a Northern California girl, right? Yes. And you've been living um, in, I, I believe, some lovely surroundings. And I think this week you guys have been having some rain, yeah? A lovely, fabulous, incredible, blessing-filled for the earth rain, yes. Mm, nice, very nice. Well, I know that I have uh, enjoyed beginning to get to know you over the last couple of years as we have spent time together in far flung places of the universe um, <laughs> with the Transformational Leadership Council. And, you know, I, um, I knew a little bit about your work and was intrigued and continue to be intrigued with the power behind it and how you have touched a chord in so many people. And as I read the books preparing for this interview, I, what I felt was that in your writing style, one of the things that happened for me was that you literally let me into your own psyche. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting way of writing because oftentimes, I'll call them gurus, people who want to teach us, right, um, will share their own experience, but somehow it, they keep us distant from who they are. Uh-huh. The experience I had in reading your work, Janine, was that you didn't do that at all. You opened the door. You said, this is my experience. This is what I've learned. This is what I've discovered. And come play with me to see what that means for you. And that mm-hmm. was how I experienced this. And, and I get, I, my feeling is that many other people have that also, and that is one of the reasons why your work is so unbelievably popular and so meaningful for people. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you about writing. So mm-hmm. have you always been a writer? Um, you know, I started writing, I started 
discovering and realizing how much I loved writing when I was in fifth grade and I was in Mrs. Epstein's class and we were given an assignment to write. And I, I found that in the process of writing this assignment, I both created and was transported to another world, which was so wonderful to see that that there could be something of my own creation that would make me so happy. I was a pretty miserable kid living in a very unhappy family, parents that were unhappy together. And and I didn't, I wasn't one of those magical kids <laughs> that have fantasy playmates and um, uh construct this whole fantasy life. I was a realist from the get-go, and so I I just dragged myself around a lot. And the fact that writing a story, and I remember what I wrote about, I was a pretty unhappy kid, and discovering that I could write or that writing opened up another world that took me out of the world that I was in was thrilling. Uh, I didn't have confidence in myself as a writer. I didn't have confidence in myself in general uh, until I tried every other profession I could possibly think to do, and none of them worked very well. Uh, I tried, you know, maybe 10 other things, and it didn't work. And finally, I applied, I tried going back to school to do pre-med, to become a doctor. and a, I mean, just really, you name it, and I, I did it. Finally, I thought, okay, I'm quite interested in psychology. Why don't I become a therapist? And I applied to get an MSW, and I got into the school, and I had six months between when I got in and at that moment, and I told myself I could do anything I wanted. What did I want to do? And all I wanted to do was write. And once I started writing, that was when I was 27. Once I started writing, I realized I really didn't want to do anything else, and I didn't care what I needed to do to support myself writing, but I was going to do that so I could write. So that was the long answer to writing. Well, that's quite a circuitous route, and yet, you know, lucky for you because some people never figure it out, and you did. And clearly, it's the path because you, your books sell so well, and you are in such demand. People don't want to just read what you've written. They want to be around you and explore these very deep topics. So, you know, your your two most recent books, um, Women, Food, and God, and Lost and Found, have an interesting um, weaving of um, a theme, and one seems to be about food, and one seems to be about money, and you say, well, actually, they're all about the same thing. Mm-hmm. So, tell us a little bit, give us a little uh, story about you know, why the issue with food and how our relationship to food became so important for you. Um, Tell us why that's important to you, and then we'll talk about the money. You know, um, as you said in the beginning, Cheryl, in terms of the way that I write, which is really personal, uh, goes along with why I write what I do also because of deeply personal reasons. And so the topic of food and money 
Food First, because I wrote quite a few books about our relationship with food and using that relationship as a doorway into our inner lives and what we believe about being alive. Mm -hmm. Uh, I started writing about food and, and actually still do write about it and probably will always write about it because it is a fascinating doorway, because I was crazed and miserable and, um, you know, I I don't even know how to describe the years I spent in what I call food hell, Uh, gaining and losing 10 pounds every other week, at one point becoming anorexic and weighing 82 pounds, and then doubling my weight and gaining 80 pounds in two months, and... um, being 160 pounds, I was also addicted to amphetamines, diet pills, X-lax. I was bulimic for a little while. I was a uh, faster. I fasted every three months for a month. I was insane and extreme, and it was a deep cause of suffering. What I believed during those years that I was wound around the issue of food was that my suffering was about food. And if I could only get that together, then I would be completely happy in the rest of my life. What I didn't understand in those years was that compulsive eating was was both a source of suffering but also a great source of comfort for me because it was a distraction from the other things that I was feeling in my life which had to do with being, um, you know, the product and child of two people who were very unhappy and addicted themselves. Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't deal with that, understand that, feel my way through that. I had no support as a kid to understand what was going on. And so dealing with and centering myself around if only I were thin, everything would be fine and I would be happy was a fabulous thing to do for me as a kid. But as I got older and I had more choices, I still became crazier and crazier around food. And so at some point, I it, I felt like I couldn't keep living, really living my life with the same kind of relationship I had with food because it was interfering with everything. Mm. Well, and so at what point did you really understand that it wasn't about the food itself. And when when did that really become clear for you? It's been a process. So I I first understood it when I was 28. And oh. I was on the verge of suicide because I felt like every day, well I felt like I couldn't keep living uh with the nightmare that I was living with about, I hated myself. I mean, what I couldn't keep living with was the amount of self-loathing that I had about myself, my thighs, my neck, my, my arms, my body, how I felt when I was with people. I, I hated who I was, hated mm-hmm. I was. It was so strong, and the and what the tool for that self hatred was my relationship with food. Because every time I promised myself I would go on a diet, 
I would, but then I would go on a binge, and then the self-hatred, it seemed, would increase. Mm. And so I couldn't stand myself anymore, and mm. I, I wanted to kill myself. And that was in that moment of deciding that I didn't want to live any longer, uh, something happened. I think the pressure of so much suffering and sorrow and self-hatred must have popped something because I began to understand that food had been serving a big purpose for me in my life. It was Mm -hmm. a language that I'd been using. I was using the language of compulsive eating. I was using the language of weight to express what I couldn't say in words. And once I saw that, then I became very interested in what I was using food to express. Then it just wasn't that my relationship with food meant I was crazy, out of control, bottomless, lacked willpower, uh, was overwhelming, too intense, and would live like this forever. Then it became, oh, I'm using food to say something that I haven't been able to let myself know directly. What is it? Mm-hmm. And I became fascinated with that. And uh, then I, that started everything for me, really. And you had actually, you had actually completed your degree, you, so you had your MSW? No, I didn't. Oh. I never went back to school. You because, never did Well, that. I have a you know, BA in psychology, and that's right. it. Right. And um, I never went uh, yeah. back to school. I was wondering if, if, you know, some of that learning in the mental health field, you know, began to help you sort this out. Having the undergrad degree in psychology, I'm sure, helped a little bit, yeah? Did you begin to sort this out? I'm not sure. No, I wouldn't say yeah. that. I, would oh. say that. Oh. I love school. I went to school in New Orleans, and I loved it, but really what I loved was being in New Orleans and uh, running around the French Quarter. And as I said, I was uh, at the beginning, I was a very good student. Or actually, maybe yeah. I didn't say that. Maybe I was telling somebody else that today. I was a very good student, but I wouldn't say I was self-reflective. And um, I, I was interested. I mean, I went down to Carl Rogers Center for the Studies of the Person when I was 19 and um, participated in encounter groups and all of that, which were the big thing to do in those years. But I think it was more of a, of a um, and I use this word with a lot of reservation, a spiritual um, journey at that point to really understand what I was doing, why I was doing it, what was the meaning of it, what I really wanted from it, and what I wanted from my life, really. Mm-hmm. So, That's yeah. a big question. <laughs> what do you mm-hmm. want from your life? That's mm-hmm. a very big question. Or of life, really. Mm-hmm. I, you know, as a kid, I'd, I'd been, you know, I would say my mother would call it obsessed with, I would say fascinated with death because I became aware very, very early that everything I loved and everyone I loved was either going to get lost, stolen, broken, or die. And I don't know how I became aware of that, but there became very early on a sense that I really wanted to live fully. 
because Ooh. I knew that it could be over at any moment. I, oh, I remember. My father gave me a book called Death Be Not Proud by John Gunther about his little son who died of a brain tumor. And if a kid could die, and I think I must have been eight at that point, I realized, wow, anybody could die. And so that started the yearning to really live as fully as I could. Hmm. Interesting. You know, you just when I think about things like that, your father gave you that book when you were eight years old, and, you know, who knows what his motivation was in giving you that book, but what it triggered in you was a lifetime of behavior and seeking that has shaped who you are today, yeah, right? that's right. And so it's, when you think about, you know, parents or anybody, we do, we do things with individuals, with kids, and we just think it's a moment, but in fact, it may be a lifetime. That's right. Yeah. Well, we have more to talk about with Zane Ross when we come right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Do you, like most Americans, spend the majority of your life at work? Are you making it the joy that it deserves to be, or are you feeling drained and unfocused? Tune in to A Great Place to Work with hosts Kurt Kaufman and Dr. Kathy Sorensen. Your hosts have more than 30 years of experience in workplace consulting and are ready to bring you the secrets and success stories of businesses who are making their business a great place to work. Listen every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and enjoy a better workplace and a better life. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Estadino with my very special guest today, Janine Roth. So, Janine, you have a very interesting, um, fascinating childhood, I think. 
having um, experienced a lot of what I think many kids don't experience. They, you know, you had ex- you had parents who really um, had high expectations of you and who expected you to move in the world with kind of almost like an adult energy. You know, that's kind of what I got from some of the reading in your books. And so it feels to me almost like you didn't really get to be a kid. You, you really kind of had this adult presence as a child. Am I interpreting that right? Um, you know, yes and no. I, you know, everybody has their childhood issues, I think, and nobody gets through life, particularly childhood and high school, without suffering a lot. And mm. so I think in my case, it, I had my parents. You had your parents. I think um, it's the uh, very unusual, and I've never met one yet, child who escapes that kind of suffering. I think the, mm-hmm. the, my childhood was painful. There was abuse. There was addiction, uh, a lot of unhappiness. And and so somebody else's childhood had a you know might have included a parent who died, I, mm-hmm. or was depressed or was ill for years, or a sibling that died. I think for me the thing that m- the suffering that I went through gave me was the both. Well, first of all, it gave me compulsive eating, if you can say it like that, which mm-hmm. I haven't ever said that before, mm-hmm. because I developed some way to protect myself from the suffering, which then later on, you know, gave me a whole a whole body of work in the exploration yeah. of it. Um, right. So I think it. I think when kids suffer a lot, it gives them the desire because we all want to be free from suffering. And so it allowed me to empathize with people. I think uh, I started writing because I had suffered so much and because I had Mm -hmm. suffered so much around food and wanted to see my way all the way through that compulsion. You know, in one of my Mm -hmm. books, I say that somebody once asked, the Zen teacher, Shanru Suzuki Roshi, what is enlightenment? And he said, seeing one thing through all the way to the end. Mm. And I felt like this was my thing to see through all the way to the end, to the light in it. And I feel like that's what I am, you know, I was going to say have done, but I would say I don't ever see the process as being finished. And I I think the relationship with food, because it is so literal and we all have to eat every single day, but also such a metaphor for things like abundance and deprivation and joy and pleasure, and particularly what is enough satisfaction and the, the, the need to be present in order to experience it, it's just been a fabulous thing to have to mm. explore. So I think my childhood maybe was unusual in some respects, um, and I think the gifts of it were that it gave me um, the ability to empathize with other people's suffering and also something to explore deeply, which mm-hmm. I have. And so you have had an experience um, 
with the financial guru Bernard Madoff, mm-hmm. and you you um, got to experience Bernie at his best, and um, unfortunately, were part of um, very um, large group of people who lost a lot in this. Yeah, and. Um, when did you begin to feel that um, this situation, this understanding that you had of our relationship to food, when did you begin to see that there might be some link here with our relationship to money? Within a couple of weeks of finding out that we'd lost everything, my husband and I um, had put like many people did, many people who believed it was a safe investment, put all of our money into uh, a friend's uh, Madoff. Well, it's difficult to explain, but he had basically, he invited a lot of people in yes. to his account, and so there were, must have been 30 or 40 of us, and you could put anywhere from $2,000 to all your life savings in there. And my husband and I, over a period of 10 years, kept using it as a bank, basically, and we put our retirement in there and our savings, and then we got a phone call one day saying that Bernard Madoff was in handcuffs and it was a Ponzi scheme, and I realized in that moment that we had lost everything, all Mm. of everything, and um, it was shocking, and it was... (laughs) horrifying and terrifying. My husband was gone for a couple of weeks in Antarctica, the one place on the planet where you can't get back from. Um, So uh, I was um, by myself, although I had a lot of friends and a lot of support, uh, and having to really be with the, that shock and the terror and uh, the shame, really, from having done, put all your money in one place, which everybody always tells you not to do. Uh, so um, it was in that process, which looking back on it, and I don't think I wrote this in Lost and Found because I wrote it within the first uh, year or two after losing our money, but that experience of losing our money and losing all of our money was one of the most profound and um, awakening, illuminating, I should say, experiences of my life. Maybe the most, except for when I almost died from anaphylactic shock five years before then or five years ago. Um, but losing our money put me face-to-face with what my beliefs were, with having nothing and what that meant. Uh, and, on well, I, I wrote in Lost and Found that after I got the phone call, I called a spiritual guide of mine, a, a beloved person in my life, somebody I've known for 20 years, and told her that we had lost all of our money. And she said to me, first she gasped, and then she said, it's horrible, and I know you're going to have to grieve about this, and, you know, empathized and gave me very sweet murmurs of love, and then said to me, nothing of any value has been lost. And mm-hmm. I, 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 I just 
wanted to strangle her, basically, because <laughs> I could yeah. not believe that she was telling yeah. me that. And and then I realized um, that to get through the night, because I didn't sleep that first night, and then to get through the night, the only way to get through was to focus on what I hadn't lost and to focus basically on what she said. But I had to find a way to know that myself because just being Mm -hmm. told that after you've lost 30 years of life savings, nothing of any value has been lost, just being told that is maddening. And if you don't find that out for you, so you have to have a way to find that out for yourself. Otherwise, they're just words, as is most um, or as are most teachings, unless you figure out a way that they're relevant to your life. So I did. I realized that unless I moment to moment to moment to moment, which meant thousands of times a day, put my attention back to, like, the smell of the air or the sound of a bird or the sip of tea or the bite of a salad or the fact that I still had legs and could walk, unless I was willing to do that, vigilant about doing that and fierce about doing that, Mm -hmm. then I would slip into this horrified, ashamed, terrified, petrified, and an absolutely frozen place of because uh, what do you do when you found out you've lost everything and yeah. um, so that worked bringing my mind back and I saw that that's what the practice always is whether you've lost your money or not lost your money it's just that most of us aren't forced to focus on what you do have instead of what you don't have because we most of us who are um, you know, here in this country, this culture, have what we need or more than what we need. So we're not in crisis situation, at least not yet, um, and we're not forced to focus on the present moment as much as I was when we lost our money. I'm not saying, uh, therefore, you should go invest your money in a Ponzi scheme so that you too can lose your money and focus uh-huh. on the present moment. I'm just saying that the crisis itself put me into such a situation where if I didn't focus on what I had, then I was going to be immobile with, with terror. Absolutely. I love the phrase, nothing of any value has been lost. Right. I mean, you know, how it's so succinct and really is an incredible mantra, right? And, and I, do, I, can't, I can't imagine you being ready to just, you know, smack her. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> because, you know, if I have to go there, then I can't go into any of the um, terror or feeling of a victim or a sense of, you know, somebody please feel sorry for me, please. You know, I, I deserve for somebody to feel sorry for me. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I can feel myself. I would, I would want that. So, you know, as you talk about the, um, the metaphor of um, food and, and abundance, and then looking at money and how you tr- see food and how you treat money. Yes. Um, you know, did you did you discover 
new elements of yourself as you began exploring this? Oh, my God, yes, yes, yes. I I was shocked. Well, first of all, the common denominator between food and money, we'll start at the back end and then I'll go back up to uh, what I discovered um, on the on the micro level, on the ground. But the overarching picture there comes down to one word, and that is enough. What is enough? And I think that comes up all the time with food and with money. That, that saying, you can never be too rich or too thin, that yeah. just speaks exactly to what happens and, I, and I'm not talking about being too thin now, although that operates with many people. It, it was mm-hmm. when I was anorexic. Certainly, I didn't think I was thin, even though I weighed 82 pounds. Um, but with what's on your plate, what, you take a bite of something, and it tastes really, really, really good. And then you take another bite, and that tastes really, really good. And after a couple of bites, you realize your body has had enough, but the mind keeps going on to, oh, but it tasted so good. Oh, I might never have this again. Oh, my God, um, I might never go to this bakery again or this restaurant again, or I'm in a foreign country and I might never taste this again. And so I want more. The mind keeps wanting more, more, more. And if you don't stay in the present and your body is, the present moment, because it speaks to you all the time. I'm tired, I'm hurt, my, you know, my leg has fallen asleep, or I'm full, I've had enough. If you don't listen to that at that moment, then you go galloping away into more and more and more and more and more. Mm-hmm. And people don't gain weight because they eat when they're hungry, what their body wants, and they stop when they've had enough. They gain weight because they don't eat when they're hungry. They don't eat what their body wants. They eat what their mind wants. And they don't stop when they've had enough. So my approach that I use with food, which is one of not dieting, scares so many people because they think unless they're depriving themselves, they will right. gain weight. But it, the but the problem with depriving and dieting is that it goes into binging. Uh, mm. And so at some point it's, am I willing to, it's the moment where I got to with money uh, after I got off the phone with my teacher where I just basically had to fall on the sword or what I call it, breaking over the waves of enough. What, mm. what did I have that was already enough even after I lost all my money and in this moment with food, have I had enough? And if I've had enough, am I willing to tell the truth that I've had enough? Because people like saying, one more than enough, one more than enough, one more than enough, one more bite, one more bite, one more bite. But that is when the weight comes on. And so the question always is, can you be in the present moment with your direct experience of enough, or is that too uncomfortable, or are you afraid you'll never get to eat again if you stop when you've had enough, because that sort of comes up for people. You know, as as you are saying this, it's interesting, what's coming to mind for me is that we have um, a society filled with people who never seem to have any time, because 
they're doing so many things, right? And they say yes to so many things. The calendars are back, booked back to back. And it's suddenly striking me that there's this same theme of am I enough? Do I have enough? Do I have enough connections, time, things to do? A calendar full enough? I mean, something about representing who we are to the world. I mean, our calendar even represents that. Well, I think it keeps coming back to the same question, Cheryl. I think we have gotten entranced with what we think having a lot of money can buy, but I think if people pay attention to what they, you know, the next more, as I call it, um, whether it's more more things to do with friends, more dates on my calendar, more speaking gigs, more success, more money, the next more, the next more, the next more, then you get the next more, and you find out that, nah, you know, it has its own set of problems, and, yeah. you, and then you forget it, and you go on to the next thing. So I think in one's mind, there's always an idea. We do a little construct. I mean, it's, it's, I, I remember the first time one of my books was on the New York Times bestseller list uh, was uh, in the 90s. And uh, that had been, as, ever since I had started to write, it had been my dream that my, mm. one of my books be on the New York Times bestseller list. And in those days, it's not the way it is anymore because of the Internet, but in those days, the New York Times list came out on a Thursday night uh, for yeah. 10 days from then. So not that coming Sunday. Day, but the Sunday after that. And so I found out on Thursday night when I was by myself that my book was going to be on the Times in 10 days from then. And there was, you know, I thought the construct in my mind was, oh, success, and this and that. But really what it came down to was I was sitting in my dining room by myself with nobody around. Yeah. And so there wasn't but who I, I thought I was going to be was not who I was once it happened. Then the following Thursday, um, I found out that it had fallen off the list. So by the time it actually came out in the Times on the New York <laughs> list, I knew it had already fallen off the list. So I felt like a big fake. Oh, wow. So all I'm saying is this thing we have in our minds, what my life is going to be like when I'm a successful writer on the New York Times list, what my life is going to be like when I wake up thin. Most people feel what happens when they lose weight is, oh, I lost weight, but I didn't lose the beliefs that created the weight. Now what am I going to do? Or when I make that amount of money, what financial advisors have said to me is, People come to them all the time and say, here's what I need to feel secure in my retirement. And let's say it's $500,000. Let's say it's $40,000, whatever it is. Let's say it's $6 million. Without fail, and I interviewed many financial advisors for Lost and Found, they told me every single time when that number was reached, the person then doubled it. Wow. So there, that there is no external sense of enough. If you don't come back to your body right now and also to what 
what is it that you actually need? You know, we have a feeling that more and more and more is going to make us happy. But I don't know if you read Daniel Gilbert's book, Stumbling on Happiness. He says that we're terrible predictors at what's going to make us happy. And that after basic needs are met, more money creates more unhappiness. And that's a pretty fascinating concept in itself, um, <laughs> especially since our entire culture is structured around striving to achieve. Yeah. 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 So um, we have more to talk about in our next segment when we come back with Jim Roth. the markets up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Are the challenges of economic uncertainty and the pressures of global competition wreaking havoc on your company strategy? To succeed in today's fast-paced, high-tech business landscape, companies must continually adapt while driving innovation and exploiting new opportunities. Listen for Quantum Business Insights with host Olivia Parr-Rudd. Our guests will include thought leaders from around the world, discussing and exploring the concepts that will move companies forward in these uncertain times. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you an entrepreneur that wants to achieve more, not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind. With host Chris Cooper, you'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. These people are making a difference and will help give you the motivation and insight to achieve more. Be More, Achieve More can be heard live Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Escobedo with my special guest today, Janine Ross, the author of Women, Food, and God, and her other book, Lost and Found, her other book. You've written like nine or 12 books, Janine. I can't even keep them. I don't even know how many you've written. <laughs> nine. Um, and they've all, they've all been very successful. Um, so 
So in this work that you do, um, in really kind of, I like to call it, you know, kind of digging underneath what is on the surface with all of our psyches, um, you do, you take people away and you do retreats. And um, what happens in a retreat that is different from, say, what happens in, you know, a therapist's office? I mean, why is the work different? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it, it's five days, and it's away from your day-to-day experience. So, uh, number one, and of course I wouldn't have said this ten years ago, but at this point we are all so utterly overstimulated with digital devices yeah. and the constant demand. And I'm not even sure we realize the toll that it takes on us. It just used to be the phone, and now it's... And then it was just the answering machine on the phone. And now there are six other ways for people to ask you things and uh, get in contact with you. And, and, yeah. and it, it's, it's, it's just ongoing. So it's just a relief to get away from that. That would not be a good enough reason to go to a, uh, this retreat just to get away from that because I know there are these digital detox camps all over the place now um, mm. that are helping people do that. What's great about coming to a retreat if you want to explore your relationship I would say, with enough in your life, with what is enough in your life via your relationship with food and or money. What's great about coming to a retreat is that that is what the focus is. You don't have other things to do. You don't have to cook. You're not working. You're not answering phone calls. You're not answering emails. And you can focus on yourself. And the, the day is set up so that we start in the morning. It's pretty much of a full day every day. Start in the morning with a meditation or contemplation or prayer. Do some movement. Then we all eat together in a big eating meditation. And it's a fabulous, enlivening, thrilling, exhilarating uh, hour and a half because particularly if food is your issue, when you when you eat together and have the immense support of someone like me and then all the other women together looking at and being curious about Gee, I, I wonder if it was the six-year-old in me who took three pieces of bread and four pancakes, um, <laughs> because I certainly don't want any of that. And to start exploring in a live atmosphere with other people and a guide, the ins and outs and the depth of your relationship with food is like coming home to yourself because you feel the peace, the relief, and the growth all there at the same time. And there's a path that's set out for you throughout the structures of the day. There's one-on-one work, individual work. There's a lot of group time. There's uh, walks in the woods, if you want to take walks in the woods. There's nighttime, non-linear, non-didactic things that we do together. The, what happens in a group over a period of five days is that a container is formed and a, a vortex, a whole energetic field is created mm. that mm. helps you grow exponentially yeah. more 
than doing individual work. I've done a lot of individual work as a student myself, um, and I've been in tons of retreats, and both are valuable, but, yeah. but and the growth that happens in a retreat that's focused on this is astonishing. Yes. Well, there's really a power in um, being witnessed in your evolution. Yeah? Yes. Yes, there is. In fact, many of um, my students at this upcoming retreat, there will be out of about 175 people, and we have a couple spaces left right now, um, 70 of them will be returning students. So that people come back, some of them this will be their second retreat, some of them this will be their 20th retreat. Mm. They come back when food is no longer their issue just for the support they feel to look at the things that have meaning in their lives. Mm. That's really nice. Yeah. That retreat that's coming up with you is going to be at the Mount Madonna Retreat Center in Watsonville, California, um, in April, April 13th to 18th. No, it's May 13th to oh, the 18th. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, of course it is, you know, um, my website and or my office number is the best place to find out about that because calling Mount Madonna um, uh, won't help very much because they're not right. in charge of this right. little process there. Well, and so just to make sure we don't forget this, JaneneRoth.com, G-E-N-E-E-N, Roth, R-O-T-H.com, is how you can learn more about this work that Janine does and to um, learn how you can get in touch with her. So, Janine, what is different in you since writing Lost and Found? What, what has changed in you? Yeah, that's a good question, too. Great question, Cheryl. Um, you're a good questioner. No wonder you do this. Um, <laughs> anyway, what's changed in me is that, oh, I, I would say so much. You know, my day-to-day life doesn't look that different. We We ended up, in fact, being able to stay in our house. Um, which I wasn't sure we were going to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what I'm so much more aware of what enough is on a moment-to-moment level of enough food on my plate. What's it, how, you know, how many sweaters are enough sweaters? How many pair of black boots are enough black boots? How much success? Does a person need in their lives how much uh, how much money what what actually is enough? Am I thin enough? you know I, well, I haven't asked myself that question for a long time because my weight has been stable for the last probably twenty eight years or thirty years, something like that but the the sense of sufficiency of understanding that enough is not a, an amount. It's not a quantity. It's a relationship to what you already have. And I was missing so much of the goodness in my life. I wasn't appreciating my husband as much as I actually appreciate him. We've been together 28 years, and, you know, you know he's a great guy, but there wasn't a sense every day I woke up, wow, I'm actually 
with somebody I really adore. How just how crazy is that? Given my whole history of relationship and and the <laughs> sense that. I can hear birds when they sing. This morning I woke up and I make sure to see what I see, to know what I know, and to take pleasure in Mm -hmm. what I already have. And when I find myself skipping ahead into the future about wanting something I don't have, I bring myself back to what I actually do have. And it's, I would say another way of saying that is that it's a constant, it's a, a constant process of appreciation of what's already here. And I think that is absolutely what shifted when we lost our money because I saw that when I did that, the, the the real catastrophe was in my mind and that if I could bring myself back to what I had in those weeks post the Madoff lost, loss, I became happy. And I, I just couldn't believe that I could be happy having lost everything, but I was. And I saw that happiness wasn't about what I had. I mean, it sounds so cliched, but because I actually saw it and I saw myself go from shock and horror and terror and great suffering to just great appreciation of the simplest things that were already and always part of my life before I lost the money. I have been so much happier since I lost the money than I was before I lost the money because I was always scared of losing the money. And then I lost it all, and there was nothing to be scared about. (laughs) That's not why I'm happier. I mean, that's a joke, but it's not actually why I'm happier. I'm happier because I let myself name the goodness in my life and take it in. I love having you here today. It's been wonderful to have you as a guest today. And I really really know people are going to want to know more. So the website for Janine Roth, G-E-N-E-E-N, Roth, R-O-T-H dot com. The books you must check out, uh, Women, Food, and God, and the most recent Lost and Found, One Woman's Story of Losing Her Money and Finding Her Life. Janine, it's been an honor having you here. Thank you. Oh, thank you. So remember, everyone, to think big. The world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.